every podcast, do a little bit of <laughs> hey, I'm bit beforehand, and we're live. Tommy, how you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me on, man. I'm really excited about this. My third favorite Texan. So I am third favorite. Third I, favorite. I claim that. I claim that by being on the podcast. I got that title. Third favorite Texan. Rob, <laughs> uh, Buck, and then you. Third yep. favorite Texan. It's be great. Yeah. So let's talk about so let's talk about you for a little bit. You're, um, I gotta ask the books on yourself. Is that a Dante's Inferno to the uh, left? Yes, it is. Nice. I, I'm I, I'm reading it now. It's a. Uh, I'm enjoying it, and it's kind of spoiling other things for me. Like I haven't finished reading the Homo or the Iliad, and so it kind of spoiled the Iliad. <laughs> like, I haven't read I haven't read the Inferno since high school, and I just ordered it like two months ago. Uh, it's a project. This one is actually a breakdown, so it's like a thousand pages, and so they go through and they explain like what Dante is doing here in in each and every part of the poem, and um, it's it's the entire you know, trinity, uh, so to speak. It is Dante's Inferno, Paradiso, the entire thing. So um, it was something that my wife and I wanted to do together. So I will be reading that to her, um, which was, you know, one of our traditions when she was still overseas. I would read to her until she fell asleep on Skype. And then I would sleep and, and you know, so that that was an interest that was an interesting way to hold a relationship, but it was a lot of fun. That is very that, that sounds fun to honor. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. You know, having skyping someone up and reading to them before they had to fall asleep. That's a very sweet and fun activity. You read a lot of fiction, right? You're reading uh, the you're listening to the Idiot by uh, Dostoevsky. I do. I do read a lot of fiction. Um, always have. I write fiction, so. Hmm. It's it was like my first love. I didn't even, I didn't start reading nonfiction until Scott Horton told me to read. Um, he told me I was chatting with him one time, and he told me to read uh, "Confessions of an Economic Hitman." I think that was the first nonfiction book I ever read. Oh wait, 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 wait! I take that back. I read um, "Ooh, the Five Thousand Year Leap." I have it up here on the shelf somewhere. So. Uh, that's why I look back because it's up here somewhere. The 5,000 year leap. I remember hearing about that book on, on Glenn Beck's podcast years and years and years ago or his radio show, I guess it was. And, uh, I, I read it and, but, but I wasn't a, a big nonfiction reader. I read a lot of fiction and, um, mm-hmm. uh, that was pretty much my focus up until th- 2016. All I read is fiction for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can I can enjoy fixing, but I don't. Uh, it's hard for me to find good fixing. You know, like there's so much out there that's just not good. But when you find good fixing, I can. I'll sit down and I'll pour it between tasks in one setting. But so much of it, I try to read. I'm just like, what am I doing? I'm. This is not. I'm not getting anything out of this. Like, like I, I'm really dumb. I wouldn't fix it. I can never find the deeper meaning. I have to like listen to somebody else explain the deeper meaning. It doesn't matter what the deeper meaning is. I, I've <laughs> I've had this conversation with my dad before. And, um, cause he reads a lot of Stephen King. He likes, he likes mm-hmm. fiction as well. And we've had this conversation before and it's like, he, he, I, I would give him a book and I'd be like, this is such a beautiful book. And he would read it and he's like, well, I don't like the underlying message. And I'm like, what's the underlying message? Who cares? Like, what does that matter? Like, that's not what I'm talking about because sometimes 
sometimes it's not about the underlying message. Sometimes it's about the beauty of the words and mm. the way that the words flow, right? If you think about reading like Edgar Allan Poe, you weren't trying to get a message from Edgar Allan Poe. And you didn't read Edgar Allan Poe because the stories were so great. You read Ad- Edgar Allan Poe because the way he told his stories. Mm. Sometimes that's what you're looking for. And sometimes that's the point of the story. And the point of reading the story is the way it's told. Mm. It's it's not necessarily that there's a deeper meaning to it or what it's saying. It's the fact that it's told in the way that it's told makes you feel something. And so I started writing poetry at a very young age because I enjoyed the way that words made me feel. And I wanted to articulate emotions through words. And as a young man, 13 years old, you're not really expected to do that in, in social conversation. Right. So I was doing that through writing poetry. And I started doing that at a very young age through writing poetry because I enjoyed the way that words felt like there was a feeling associated with certain words. Like if I say the word malaise, there's something there that's like bigger than what you can wrap your mind around. There's it's this feeling that you get and you couldn't describe it, but you understand it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, I've always been interested in that portion of literature. Hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. Like, like you look at art, you don't need to know the deeper meaning of what the artist is trying to say if it's a beautiful piece. You know, you don't need to know what uh, Van Gogh's mind was like to understand Story Night is beautiful. Right. Or music, like classical music is beautiful. You don't have any words to it. You know what the meaning is. It's just the emotions and the the, the art of it. And I never sort of, it's right, the books are the same thing. Like, there's art there. Even if it's just words, the words are tied to emotion. That's, that's a good yeah. way of reading books. <laughs> well, so I mean, if, I was, if, you, if you look at, um, you look at sculptures that way. You look at paintings that way. You look at, um, if you look at, you can look at architecture that way. Like, why wouldn't you look at books that way? Right. There's so much, like there's a book, it's right over my head called um, House of Leaves by Daniel Lewski, uh, Mark Z. Daniel Lewski. And it's one of the most intriguing books I've ever read in my life. And people, I've gone on the internet and the forums where they're like, oh, well, this is a story about yada, yada, yada. And this is a story about yada, yada, yada. But if you read the book, if you sit down with the book and you're just like, okay, this is just a creative expression that this guy's making. Like, it doesn't matter what it's about. Like, the guy may have had something in mind. You may get something else out of it. Who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. The the fact is that you'll turn to pages and it'll have one word on the page written diagonally across the page. Like, what does that visual mean? Like, what what are they? What is it doing? Like, who who cares what the artist meant by creating that page for you? It means something. It, it draws something out of you. It, it's it's pulling something out of you, and that's what's important is what it pulls out of you, not necessarily what the artist meant. Like, why is there one word on the whole page that's colored red? or blue or, or green or whatever, like who cares? And he did that a lot in that book. He did a lot of like kind of messing around with the text and turning it sideways on the page and using different colors 
for visualization. And he did all these different things with that book. What, but what book was this again? It's, it's called uh it's this one right here. Hold on one second. As you can see, it's beat up. I've read it several fucking times. <laughs> House of Leaves. I'm gonna add it to my reading list. That sounds that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, let me let me just show you like some of the stuff he does, like this. I don't know if you see huh. the text, how it's all written sideways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so he does shit like that. He uses visuals along with the story to mm -hmm. fuck with, like to to bring the story into your own like mind. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. matter what he meant by that. Like, how do you like yeah. register what, what is being done here? You know, it doesn't matter what he meant. It's like, how are you comprehending it? I was like in English classes, I'd be like, what did he also mean by the door was red? And it's like, there's never a question like, how does this book make you feel? You know, how do you feel? Right, like, right. It's about the intention of the author. And it's like, the author is not there to explain his life. So he's there to give you art and you're supposed to react to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're reading Beowulf and you're supposed to go back and ask the author what he meant by Beowulf, right? <laughs> Like, no, what, how does it make you feel? Like, what does it do to you? And this is, this is something that was always interesting to my parents because I always, I, when it, you know, you have to take all these stupid fucking tests when you're in school and they're registering like where your reading comprehension is. My reading comprehension was always off the charts, but I was, but I was never reading like in the way that the teachers wanted me to read. I was never mm -hmm in indulging in these stories and getting out of the stories, what they wanted me to get out of them. You know, I was reading like, I read like city people when I was like 10, you know, like shit like that, because I was like, I would get things out of it that most people didn't get, you know? And so I was able to follow along. I was, I told my dad, I made the mistake of my of telling my dad one time I was bored. And so he pulls out a notebook. He pulls out a notebook and he has like 15 Charles Dickens novels printed out on computer paper. He pulls one out and just hands it to me. He's like, read that. You know, like, <laughs> so don't ever tell your parents you're bored. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I look to my parents, I'm bored. Like, Modi Yard. It's like, wait, I just mowed it yesterday. Mowed it yet. <laughs> Go outside. <laughs> yeah, do something. Like, be productive. We were living in an apartment at the time. He couldn't tell me to mow the yard, but. But yeah, he's so he just hands me Charles Dickens and tells me to read it, you know. Nice. So, and that's like that, but but it but it lit my fire for literature and and really enjoying reading. And and I don't think I read even like when I read like stuff like Rothbard or Conkin or any of this stuff. I don't think I read it the same way other people read it, but because. I I'm really interested in the way that the words form more than I am in what the, what they're actually saying a lot of times. Sometimes I find I have to read a page four or five times because I get lost in the, in the rhythm of it, you know? And, and so I'm not <clears throat> registering the message as much as I am like just enjoying the words. Nice. So the first time I ever heard you was on Slope Games Tilderbug episode. You walked over and was like, "I'm tripping balls on mushrooms." I was tri I was tripping balls on mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like this guy. I want to hear more from this guy. <laughs> um, 
like, like Silver Bug. I, I'm gonna go with Silver Bug this next year. I have to hear about this last time. I'm like, I'm not missing out. I gotta go. Silver Bug is a blast. My, yeah. I went to my first Liberty event this weekend. I went to Tom Woods' the 2000s, and I gotta tell you, after I, I had so much fun. I'm never <laughs> missing Liberty events. Like wherever it's never wherever one's at, I gotta go to it. it yeah, was right. Awesome. I, w- I wish I had that kind of money and confidence. Mm. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna afford it. I want to have to start buying crypto or doing some kind of find some bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I can't miss out on these things. Um, but it, it was weird. Like you, you bump into people like uh, Kale and Harlos, the pink lady. I yeah. bumped into her. She's friendly. Mm-hmm. She's nice. I said hi. And I remember, oh, yeah, she blocked me on Twitter because I posted two memes about her and Jason Stapleton. <laughs> oh. And it's just like you don't even, uh, you don't want to. You, when you're a libertarian, you're kind of isolated because you know you're not a lot of people like us, and you're so engorged in the Twitter with all these people, you're just constantly talking to them and hanging out with them online. You kind of forget like these are actual people, and we agree on ninety nine percent of things. We, we might disagree on like two, three percent of stuff, and one of that three percent dictate every conversation online. But when you're in person, you're both drinking a beer. It's like you both like the same beer. You both at the event. It's no problem. Yeah, it's um. That's that's unfortunate, and that's something I'm I'm really working on, um, in digging into is there. Okay, so there are some people, and and I'm not going to dispute there are some people, and I've called some of them out on, by name on my own podcast. So if you want to hear who I'm talking about, you can go to my podcast. I'm not I'm not going to get you in trouble, but. There are some people that I think are mis- malicious. I don't even know if malicious is the right right term, but they're the problem with libertarianism, and it's something you and Pete were talking about, right? And and I was listening to your episode with Pete earlier, so this is fresh on the mind. Libertarianism talks a lot about rights and not about responsibilities, hmm. and um when you start talking responsibilities, there are a certain type of person, usually a younger person that hasn't had any experience in the world begins to, um, I I guess, I guess it turns them off. I I guess that's the best way to say it. It just turns them off. They don't want to hear about responsibility. Yeah. And you can't have one without the other. Like one of the things, one of the common threads on your shows is you do talk religion quite a bit, excuse me, which is something I've been digging into some and nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have a right to anything. What it does say is you have responsibilities. If you have the responsibility to act specific ways, right? It doesn't say you have the right for other people to treat you a certain way. It says you have the responsibility to act certain ways. If you had the right for people to treat you a certain way, then there probably would have been no like Jesus on a cross type deal. Like the ultimate man, the perfect man probably wouldn't have had to be tortured to death if you have a right to, to live a specific way. But you have a responsibility to treat people a specific way. A lot of people don't like the term responsibilities. They don't like being told about responsibilities. They don't like facing their responsibilities. So there are specific people 
and I don't know if I know all of them, but there are people in the libertarian movement, quote unquote, that don't like that term responsibility. If you mention responsibility, suddenly you're a fascist or you're an authoritarian or you're a tyrant or whatever. That was me when I got into the movement. <laughs> that was that, uh, that was my attitude. Like, I just did not like the responsibility talk. I've put right. my mind on it. But to begin with, I was like, responsibility. No, I am, my, I am my own island. I am my own individual. I don't owe anybody anything. But you, just, still have, just, but you still have responsibilities. Like you, yeah, but being your own island, you have responsibilities to maintain the island. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like you're not – nobody nobody is uh, exempt from the responsibility to something, whether it's your wife, your family, something. You have responsibilities to something. And there are a lot of people that don't want to hear it. They don't like it. They don't want to hear it. And for those people, a lot of them will probably grow up and that's fine. I don't have time to deal with those people right now. That's not what my podcast is about. That's not what I talk about. I talk about people that are willing to like face responsibility head on as Randy Blythe. So, so said so wisely one time I was not raised to be a petulant child, I take on responsibility head on. Right. And that's kind of the way I've always looked at it. And so when, when, when people there, there are people in the Liberty movement that hear that term responsibility and they shy away from it. And I don't want anything to do with those people. And those people deserve to, we, we should be fighting with those people for sure. But there are a lot of people in the Liberty movement that are not antithetical to responsibility and they end up turning against each other for small little, like you said, two or 3% like, and it's like, yeah. all right, dude, one of my best friends, one of the, one of the people I consider my best friend since I started podcasting is Matthew Ho. Right now. I don't know if, if you've heard of Matthew Ho or your audience has heard of Matthew Ho, he's been on Scott Horton's show several times. He's been on my show a couple of times and I love this guy and we could not disagree more on economics. Not, I mean, not, he's like, he's like kind of like a Tulsi Gabbard type. Like we could not disagree more on economics, but I can tell you that there is not a better heart out there. There's not a better guy out there. He means the best. So why would I fight with him? Right? Yeah. Like, why would I want him to be my enemy? Because he was he's a veteran that was in Afghanistan. He was in Iraq. And he's come back. And he's working with soldiers with PTSD. And he spends all his time writing anti-war articles. Why is he my enemy in any way, shape, or form? Yeah. We disagree on economics. So? Doesn't mean he's a bad person. Doesn't mean like he like I should hate him, but then there are people that agree with me on ninety nine percent of things and disagree with me on responsibility, and I will fucking go fist to cuffs with those motherfuckers because they're <laughs> fucking wrong. And I'm sorry, I told you I wasn't going to cuss, but here I go. It's fine. I I, I go. I, I told you I'm a truck <laughs> driver. I've been a truck driver for nineteen years. So, but yeah, no, it's like long time. Yeah, it's it's like. These guys, they they want to dump the most important part of being a person, about being an adult, 
they're trying to dump that part off and just accept the the benefits and it's like no man there's no benefit without the sacrifice yeah yeah you know no absolutely absolutely that, that was something i had to i, I kind of had to learn like I, um this one that started the podcast i knew i didn't know anything and i wanted to learn more i, I need to find a way to talk to people because I, I learned best from talking to people but when i first started the liberty movement i was very like ayn rand versus your selfishness i am right i, I don't owe anybody anything nobody owes me anything and I didn't like this responsibility talk. Every time I hear responsibility, all I could think of was like uh, Edmund Edmund Burke. You know, I don't like Burke. Um, and I can think of the Tragicons, you know. But like the way, way people frame responsibility who aren't in a liberty space aren't framing it. And the like, conservatives don't frame responsibility in the right way, in my opinion. Libertarians right. do frame responsibility in a much better way. And that's something I kind of noticed about myself was I – uh, until recently, I started from responsibility. I didn't want. To, I was at work. I didn't want promotion because I mean more hours means I was dependent. You know, if I got promoted, people are not dependent on me to show up. If I don't show up, people don't get to work. I don't want that responsibility. I don't want it to be tied down. All right. And I've kind of realized it's like I. Why am I staying away from responsibilities? You know, like what reason is that? It's like I'm going to do anything in those days. I'm going to. I should beat it. I should accept this responsibility and move on with it. I have. I've been promoted. and It's great. It's just. It's. I can't figure out why though. I can't figure out why people don't. Um. But I can't, I can't figure out why I had that mindset to begin with. And I can't I figure think, out why people have that mindset. I think it's an immaturity thing. Hmm. And I don't think you see the benefits of it. Like hmm. it, that you just feel like you're owed something. You have the right to something. They're entitled, right? Hmm. That might be part of the culture that, that you were raised in. I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 42 years old. My I'm parents. 23. Okay. So it could be, it could be just a lack of maturity at your age. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out what it means to be an adult at 23. I had kids, but I didn't want to be responsible sometimes. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're a bad person for it. I'm just saying that if, if I'm talking about like, I just had this podcast uh, last week with Shane Hazel where we talked about fatherhood. That was the subject. If you want to tell me that's not a libertarian subject, you can go fuck yourself. I don't I, see here. I go again, um, but <laughs> you're going to have to, you're going to just going to have to beat bleep me. dude. <laughs> I, know I, I know a guy. I'll contact him and see if I can get him. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Uh, but, but yeah, no, it's like, okay. Like how is fatherhood? Not libertarian. There are a lot of libertarian fathers. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever attacked Tom Woods for being a good father to his daughters, right? Yeah. But we want to do a podcast on it, like, and people want to get upset about it. Why? Like, we're just talking about our experiences, what we've learned, the things we've gone through. Mm. And this is real life, man. This isn't theory. This isn't philosophy. And yeah. sometimes... And, most of my podcasts aren't about theory or philosophy. I try to find something in reality and in, in life and that we can talk about mm. that will help somebody. Yeah. No, definitely. Your episode was, uh, I think it was Coop, Ace, and Matt Erickson on uh, uh, manhood. Masculine. And, uh, yeah, manhood. Yeah. That was a great episode. Just yeah. really, um, there's a few podcasts I've listened to that kind of like knocked me on my ass and made me, uh, we adjust some things. And that was one of them. It's 
And I guess if people want to knock on podcasting and like, I, I was at my friends and like, all you do is like talk to people online and we've booked in your room. And they're right. I, I do need to get out more, but there's so much that I have learned and I've been able to improve myself on from podcasting and reading these books. Like it's, it, they are they are right. I didn't get out of the house more, but at the same time, there are things that I am learning to improve about myself from talking to people and uh, reading these books. That it's it's wrong to uh, throw those away, throw it out. You know, it's it's rare to be able to find people in real life to have these conversations with. Yeah, and and so podcasting in a way is cathartic. You can have a conversation with people. You may not agree with them hundred percent, but yeah you're you're having these in-depth really intricate conversations that expand the way that you view things mm-hmm. and that's not something you experience in day-to-day life on a regular basis and that kind of leads into what some of what you wanted to talk to talk about tonight like when you go to a a tom woods event or you go to a renegade university or you go to childerberg and you're meeting these people in person, right? It's like a family reunion. It's it's yeah. you're you're meeting people that are sh- that share something really special with you, and um, it's it's very it's very camaraderie. Um, I know Ace and I have talked about this a little bit, and. Uh, you know, um, I kind of look at Ace as a little brother and I'm very protective of like Ace. Like if somebody like attacks him on Twitter, I can disagree with Ace and I'll attack that person back. And then I'll like text Ace, you know, behind the scenes and be like, what the hell are you talking about? dude?" Like, <laughs> you know, but I've never had to do that. I'm not saying that I've ever had to do that, but I'm just saying that would be, that's kind of our relationship. And so, but I didn't know Ace in person until Childerberg, you know, and once meeting him in Childerberg and seeing how sweet of a guy he is and how smart he actually is and just the way he holds himself. I'm like, I'm, I would never let somebody hurt this guy. You know, like I, w- I would just wouldn't let, let that happen. You know, I've been through the ringer a couple of times. You can look at me and tell. And, and so <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to let, like, I'm not going to let my dude over here who's trying to be the best person he can be and study and be a, be the most intelligent person he can be and figure this out. I'm not going to, like, stand by the wayside and just let somebody abuse him because maybe he's missing something. You know, I'd rather I'd rather pull somebody like Ace or a Cotton or, or one of these younger guys um, like you aside and speak to you in private. But I wouldn't let you, like, be completely manhandled on in public, you know, like that's just not my personality. It's not the way I go about things. So when you meet these people in real life, there's something really special about it. Right. Um, my wife and I were, we were, we were kind of chuckling, um, the other day cause I was standing there and I was talking, I was in the, in, in a conversation with Tho Bishop and Matt Erickson. And I knew where my wife was in the crowd, but she wasn't with me. She was with another friend of mine and she decided she wanted to come find me. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw her and I stopped Tho and Matt. And I was like, yeah, baby, I'm over here. Like, you know, raise my hand so she 
see where I was at. And she came over there and Tho and Matt didn't think anything over. It. it wasn't disrespectful to them. I just told them, hold on one second. And, you know, there are a lot of people that wouldn't be that respectful to my wife to allow a conversation to go on a complete hiatus until she were able to find me. And that meant a lot to me, you know, like, and, and I enjoyed spending time with Matt and though, and, and I feel like, like I had already had conversations with Matt, as you've mentioned. And so it but it's like meeting part of my family that I'd never met before and being extremely familiar with these people in a very intimate way and intimate in their thoughts and their feelings and the way that they go about their life that I don't get on a daily basis with, you know, 90% of the people I run into. Yeah. And when I got out of the military, that was the one thing I missed. I didn't miss the training. I didn't miss the, Oh, you're the baddest motherfucker in the world. I didn't miss any of that. What I missed was that camaraderie, that, that brotherhood. And, and I found that in a lot of ways with this community. And so going and spending time with these people, going to Childeberg and hanging out for three days or going to Renegade University and spending three days there with, with all my friends that I had met and podcasted with and done had all these experiences with online, we're actually making these like experiences in real life now. And, and we're experiencing each other as individuals and, and understanding that you are you, all right. You're not some like just aberration on my screen. You are a human being that I can physically interact with. And that makes a big difference. And it changes a lot of things whenever you're able to interact with people in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like this, like I'm going to, I'm going to college currently and like you, um, I'm reading a lot of this book. It's called, um, oh, the cave in the light. Have you, uh, have you heard of it? No, I haven't heard of it. It's uh, basically, it's a history of philosophy from Aristotle and Plato onward and kind of shows how they both infected different schools and, Go from there, and you read, you, hear, you read these um, stories about like, the old uh, cars used to be. You know, people would just basically sit around, lecture, and then talk, and then hang out, and that was kind of how you would learn. All right. And these classes I'm in now, I just sit there with this person just drones on and on and on about nothing, and I have to do a discussing group, and I type out five sentences, and they type out five sentences, like, "Hi, Caleb, comma, I like what you said, comma," and it's like this—it's it's so formulaic. There's zero engagement. <laughs> But you know, people on Twitter or in person, you're like, this is what I want to, this is what I want to do. This is what I was told college was going to be like, talking to interesting people, learning new ideas and making friends. Right. And that's not what college is anymore. And it's just, that's a, that's a shame. And that's why like, winning a university looked like, I wish I could have gone, honestly. It looked so, it looked like so much fun. Yeah, I know. I can't say that that's ever been what college is or has been. I know that's what it's been um, advertised as. I'm not the person to ask about that because I didn't go to college because I was complete. I was completely sick of any kind of school by the time I got out of high school. Uh, I was I was done with it. Um, I was already working full time before I got out of high school, so I was like, oh, like whatever. I'm out of this bitch. How, 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 you, 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 um, 
when you started working, I'm, I'm asking, what, what, what's kind of like your working history? Because pe- people who are blue collar truckers, they always have interesting working history with me because they go from like job to job kind of thing. Yeah, I did when I was like when I was young. I did. I there was actually a three year period where I had like ten jobs. Um, but so yeah, it was crazy. But um, yeah, the I started off as a sandblaster, uh, sandblasting and painting when I was 17 years old. Um, prior to that, I worked at McDonald's part time, and then um, I went from sandblasting and painting to being um, I don't even know how to explain what I was doing. It was, all right, so you know the um. You know, the man lifts on the back of trucks on like the bath, back of electric trucks and shit like that. They have this, they have this fiberglass piece on it. So I was like, I would sand that down and then I would take Bondo. I'd fill in all the holes and then it would be painted over. So I did that. Um, I did spray and bed liners. I did, I was in the union as a carpenter's apprentice. Um, I've done, I did retail, actually worked for the company I'm working for now. Uh, I was shipping and receiving man, uh, night manager for a book bindery uh, company in Houston. I did, um, I was, I was receiving, I worked receiving, unloading trucks for Walmart um, at one point in time. Then I went into the military and the law jobs before you joined the military. Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. lot of jobs. <laughs> that was like from the se- time I was 17 till I was 21. That's that was kind of like what I was doing. I was I was bouncing around. And in that period, there was a period where I was doing a lot of like different construction jobs. So there was um there were that's when I had 10 jobs in like three years. I was doing a, I did all kinds of shit. I built an addition onto my grandpa's house. Um, built him a deck on the front of his uh, trailer and an addition on the back of his trailer to make it uh, a house instead of a trailer. Like we did all kinds, I did all kinds of stuff back then. Um, it, it's really hard to remember everything I was doing back then, uh, but it was all physical labor and it was all just learning different skills and getting my feet wet and my hands dirty and, and getting involved and showing ambition and just moving along and, and doing stuff, uh, whatever, whatever was available really. And I, I wasn't afraid to do it. And, and then I went to the military. I got out of the military. I started driving truck and I've pretty much been driving truck ever since, um, since I was 23 years old, I'm 42 now. So that's pretty much all I've done since I was 23. But before I was, before the military, before I was 23 years old, I, I did a lot of shit, man. I was involved in all kinds of stuff. And, uh, I remember a lot of it and I'm able to utilize a lot of it, uh, in my home time building chicken coops and, you know, greenhouses and all kinds of shit. So, <laughs> so yeah. you know, it's, I, mean, I, I kind of, uh, I have a friend of mine who's kind of doing a similar thing. Like he just goes job to job uh, every, every six months he has a new job. And I'm kind of just yeah. like, I like the fact that I have job security and like, I know I'm going to be at, but at the same time, I have perfected what I'm doing. What I'm doing has no carry over to any of the job. And yeah. I know what he's doing. He's going to be like, when he gets out of reason working, he'll have all these skills. And I'm like, I won't have any of these skills because I've perfected one job. That one job has no, like, I can cut line. That's about it now. I don't think carries over. Right. But, you know, um, 
my situation was I had, I had my first kid was born when I was 19. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those situations where I had to chase money. I had no choice. It was, it was just one of those situations. And, um, you know, I, I never got to stick with anything that I really enjoyed and I really wanted to do until I started paying off all my child support. And, and so it's cool in a way because you get to experience all kinds of things, but it's a curse in a way too, because in a lot, a lot of, a lot of times you're doing it because you have no choice but to do it. And so if you're doing it because you have no other choice, then you're just like, you're not even thinking about what you're doing. You're just trying to make it to tomorrow a lot of times. And if you, if you, if you pay any attention to me on Twitter, which I know you do, but I'm, I'm talking to your audience at this point, you'll notice I'll say a lot that I love my life. And that's because I've gotten to a point where I'm not constantly under pressure. There's not like this constant bombardment of shit coming upon me. I have nine acres. Uh, I have a beautiful wife. I have a granddaughter who's going to be two in a few days. Nice. You know, I, I have these wonderful dogs. I have a cool job that I don't mind doing, you know? So it's like, eh, whatever I like. And, and I love podcasting and I like having these conversations and, you know, I didn't have this kind of outlet, you know, growing up in the nineties, we didn't have podcasting. So this is new. And this is something like I jumped on, you know, I had been told by a lot of people, Oh, you have a voice for radio. You'd be great on the radio. And, those people may have been flattering me and lying to me, but as soon as I found the opportunity to start podcasting, I did. And I, I love it. I love having the conversations. I love learning new things. I love having a, not only reading cause I love reading, but I love having like kind of a, a reason to read and yeah. reason to read things that I probably wouldn't have read in the first place. And that's, that's and why I saw so, the book club. I had so many right. books I need to read. I'm like, no, I could do both. I could read these books do the podcast and find out what mo- books I should read next because I will have people right. tell me to read this one next to the podcast. Like it's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the podcast is very cathartic to me and I tell you, uh, I mean, I'm just going to kind of like go back to what I was saying before and maybe it's my old age. I'm a little bit more sentimental, but um, you know, some of the, some of the friends I've made, man, podcasting, I, I would have never made. Otherwise, yeah. like that, I would have never had the opportunity to have the relationship with like a Mike Meharry or a Scott Horton or a Pete Quinones or Adam Patrick or Matt Erickson or Coop that I have today. Like the, this, this is whatever it is, whether it matters to the outside world or not is extremely special to the way I live my life today. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Dostoevsky. You uh, you said you uh, what what if, what of his works have you read? Because I know you're listening to the idiot currently. So what, what have you? Uh, I've read um, I read Crime and Punishment when I was in high school, hmm. and the uh, brothers. How do you, I don't even know how to say it? Karamazov or something. Like, I, I I'm, I'm not, not sure. I'm probably gonna try. <laughs> I'm not sure how to say it. Like it's like Karamazov yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So I read I've read those and I started the idiot the other day. And, um, yeah, no, he's, 
you know, Stephen King has this reputation of being this like brilliant um, tacticianer of characters and the way he creates characters. And I remember reading a thing about Stephen King years ago that he, um, he used to write a story every week, a short story every week for um, Reader's Digest. And, mm-hmm. and that his whole purpose in writing these stories, he didn't focus so much on the stories that he was focused on character development. And, and developing characters. And I can't help but wonder if Stephen King's entire process of doing this for umpteen years, I don't know how long he went, went on about it. I can't help but wonder if his entire process was trying to match Dostoevsky's ability to develop characters. Because Dostoevsky has this really, I don't know if it's an innate knowledge. I don't know if it's something that he just figured out or if it was something he was educated in. But when you read it, you you when you start reading his stuff, you understand the psychology of the person that he's talking about at that moment. And it's really interesting because I've never read another author that was able to do that at that level, like to that extent, and really like introduce you not only to what you would meet of the character, but what that character's inner workings were and do it with such precise language to every character, right? So imagine watching Breaking Bad, but you got the Walter White story for every single character in Breaking Bad, right? Sounds good. It's very intense. It's very like, okay, like, so you get this whole like psychological breakdown of everything that's going on between everyone. And it makes the story, it's different because you're not going to read most stories like John Grisham isn't going to read this way, right? Mm-hmm. It reads different. And this is why I was telling you earlier, like I would start off with like crime and punishment, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as long as the idiot but you get a good idea of what he's bringing to the table whenever he's writing. And so I saw, I saw the crime punishment. I saw it. Uh, I think about seven, eight months ago, I saw it. And I mm-hmm. got to the part where he's talking about that guy he meets in the bar who is a drunk. Right. And his, his wife and daughter became prostitutes. And it's the way he breaks down that guy's mind and the way he breaks down like the wife and daughter's mind of the whole situation i i had to stop winning i just just all of that for a little bit because it was like so it was, it was a little psychic in the first like introduction in the book but i was like i already had this like a break just to, like digest all of it because it was so i don't right. know deep into it it was yeah it's not it's not like reading modern fiction it, it's not because he's giving you a psychological breakdown of these e- each and every character. And, and so he's almost breaking you down psychologically because you start recognizing, Oh shit. I'm like that. I'm like that. Yeah. 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 I got that tendency. Like that's part of my, yeah. Yeah. That's probably not such a good thing. That sounds horrible when you put it that way. Like, let's not, let's not talk about that. You know? Mm -hmm. And he does that. 
in such an interesting way. And he does it better than anybody I've ever seen before. You know, I've, I've read some cheap ass authors that like, eh, pseudo in like Dostoevsky ripoffs, but they could never Dostoevsky is the way Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky, you know, like it's just, yeah, the dude was just like, he was just such a brilliant writer, you know, like really, if you look at like, and, in that that era of, of Russian literature was just amazing. You know, you you brought up Tolstoy earlier. Um, I don't know if I've read any of his stuff, but I know I've heard highly, of. Highly recommend the deaths of Ivan Ilyich. It's only a hundred and twenty pages, mm-hmm. and that book. Um, I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anybody listening, but that book broke me and made me readjust my everything. Like everything I was doing, yeah. I went like a little, I'll just read this book because I was told it's pretty good by Jordan Peterson or something. And after right. I finished reading it, I was like, oh, I need to readjust everything I'm doing in my life and get something going. Right. It, it had that effect on me. I can't recommend that book enough. It if you um I call I call it an objectivist horror story. If you're like an <laughs> I'm scared of shit out of you. Um you know, you know, a book a book that did that to me is um it's a, it should be right there somewhere. Anyway, it's called Outliers by Malcolm McDowell. Outliers. Uh, I read that book and completely changed the way I looked at people. It just completely changed how I looked at life, how I looked at raising children, like everything, like just just shattered it. And it, it's it's nonfiction, so it's not fiction, but but still, it's just like one of those books you read and you're like, wait, what? Are you like what? What are you telling me here? <laughs> like, are you telling me I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing going through life all the way up to this point in time? You know, like <laughs> so. But yeah, that's a that's a great book. Um, also, um, Ordinary Man popped out right there. Whenever I on uh, my list for the longest time, I need to read. It's it. it's such a good book. It's such a good book. It, it will make you think like, like Jordan Peterson always said when he would talk about it, it makes you aware that you would have been one of the Nazis. Like you're like, like this guy that he's talking about right here was a mechanic and now he's executing Jews. That's my uncle, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's just dude down the street. Right. And, and so yeah, like when you read stuff like that, and I like I love reading stuff like that, you know, um, that kind of shifts the way you think about things. Yeah. Whether in, in 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 an uncomfortable way that makes you kind of uncomfortable in your own skin. Because one thing mm-hmm. one thing I've figured out over life over my life is I don't know near as much as I'd like to think I know. Mm. And, and one of the, one of the things I, I wrote a, I wrote a piece, I don't know, probably about five, six years ago. And it was entitled, the more I learned, the less I know. Mm. And it, and what I was, what I was trying to say in the title, it was, it was supposed to be kind of, kind of clever and tongue in cheek. But what I was trying to say is the more I learn about things, the less I'm sure about anything. Yeah. You know, that was kind of what I was trying to get at. And, and that, and that I kind of, 
I kind of robbed it uh, from um, oh, what's his name that wrote um, I quit. I Who's think him? no the 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 teacher the the t- the guy that was the teacher. I can't think of his name right now. I I can see his face. Um, wrote a wrote a bunch of books. He he was a teacher in New York for years. He wrote an article called "I Quit." I think. Um, I guess I could look it up because my phone is right here. So <laughs> if you, if you bear with me for one second, all good. Uh, I just I, I for some reason I can't think of his name, and I feel horrible about it. Because uh, he was a, he was a genius. Yeah, here we go. Uh, and there are a bunch of people on the other end of this listening, just screaming because yeah. they they know exactly who I'm talking about. Uh, and it's not giving me his name. Man, it has the article, but I don't see his name. Man, I can't think of his name. John Taylor Gatto. That's his John name. Taylor, okay. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't find it in the article, but it, it finally popped up there. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Um, what was I gonna say? It's to me. I, uh, I don't know if you noticed on day, but like three days ago on Twitter, there was a whole debate over would you coerce a politician's family to get liberty? And uh, it started off as Ace basically a bunch of people trying to explain, hey, if a guy burns your house down, you can't burn his house down with his family inside. You know, and like, you had to argue basic morality all day long. And well, I know a lot of people would say I would do that, but like the fact that they would do something does not immediately justify it. If you could justify it to yourself and you would do it, does not mean it's not an immoral action. And a lot of people, I think, haven't like they haven't met ordinary man and they haven't realized, hey, you can be a monster. Like they mm-hmm. have, they, they, they sing on themselves too much as I am the good guy in everything I do. And even if I do, like, I was, I, I said, I. If I had to steal something for food, if I had to rob a, rob a place to feed my family, I would rob the place. That does not mean robbing a place is not a moral action. Yeah, that doesn't that mean you're doing the right thing. Yeah, it just it just means that you are willing to take actions that you find despicable to take care of those that you find that you put on a higher plateau than you do yourself. Yes. Yeah. And a, and a lot of people, I think they haven't incorporated, they haven't read, and they don't like reading fiction. And they haven't read anything that kind of makes them go, oh, yeah, I could be the bad guy, you know? Like, it's all mm-hmm. the, they don't, I, what's the word for it? Like, they don't uh, confront their shadow or something. Like, what's the, t- who was it that said about the shadow? Jung? That's Carl Jung, yeah. Oh, yeah, Jung. Uh, yeah, they, I, re- I, I got into a Jung kick uh, uh, over the last couple of months. That fucked me up. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to get into it. I know I need to get into it, but I, I'm waiting till I am more, how do I put, uh, Set solid. I'm not like I'm so many new ideas that incorporate right now. I'm not solid yet, and I want to try much more solid before I start trying to subject myself to more reading that kind of stuff. You know, you know, like I've talked to I talked to Typo about this. I've talked to the last episode I did with Adam Patrick. We talked about this a little bit. I talked about this a little bit with Buck and Matt when I just had them on. You know, at the end of Renegade University. Um. I don't, you don't really have to read young to, to get, to get this. Uh, People need to understand that you have the capacity for evil. Like think of the worst thing you've ever done in your life. The thing that you're most ashamed of in your life. And we all have something like no matter what it is, we all have something. 
and, 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 and reflect on that and, and what it is that puts you in that mindset and imagine that that mindset goes deeper than you ever thought it ever went and you're halfway there right like yeah i don't know i don't know how to i was i was in i didn't i never was deployed but i was in the military and um one of the things i i cannot get out of my head from the time that I was in the military was I was not only willing, but I was happy to kill people Mm. at that time. Like there, you have the capability, you have the capacity within you to be there. Mm. And don't think that somebody that's doing these things is lesser than you or, because it, that's not the case. Now, fortunately for me, I never had to be put in the situation where I had to kill somebody. But I know some really wonderful people, like Shane Hazel, for instance, or Matthew Ho, or um, Scott Spaulding, that were in that situation at one point in time in their life where they were put in a position to kill people. And I know what it did to them, like through talking to them, I know what it did to them. And I know that it, they were unaware of that, the depth of their depravity prior to experiencing that. And I think it's a big mistake for people not to confront the darkest depths of their soul mm-hmm. and, and yeah. not to, Come to come to terms with it. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like it. Come to terms with it and learn how to conquer it. Because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where that takes over. Because it's there. Like, no matter what you say, what you think, what you do, that capacity for evil, that capacity for violence is there. Conquer it before you have to confront it right? That's my thing. Like I understand the in inability or unwillingness or dislike of looking at these things of looking at the shadow, looking at the most depraved parts of your, your psyche. I had a guy call me the other day and I I, I know this kind of sounds kind of off the wall, but just give me a second here. I had a guy call me the other day. I hadn't heard from him in four years. I hadn't talked to him in four years. And he said, uh, I've been listening to your podcast. And in June, my mom died on the 21st. And my wife left me on the 24th. And the things I've been thinking, I don't feel right describing to anybody. But you were a good friend of mine years ago i don't know who else to talk to and we sat on the phone for hours just chatting that's like my podcast did that you know like me having that voice out there did that but it's because i'm not afraid to talk about this Mm -hmm. 
right? If I weren't willing to talk about this, I would have never heard from that guy. Hmm. But he told me it was your talk about your capacity for evil, your own understanding of your capacity for evil that made me comfortable enough to call you after four years. And I was like, that's fucking awesome. Like that makes me feel good. I, I did something right. So whenever I'm telling you to confront these things, I'm not telling you to turn yourself over to the antichrist or, or whatever. I'm just telling you, understand that you have a, this capacity within you. And by understanding you have this capacity within you, you can have empathy and compassion for those that have been overtaken by this. And by having empathy and compassion for those that have been overtaken by this, then you can actually have an honest conversation with those people about what it is they've experienced. And nobody wants to have those conversations. A lot of people are afraid of those conversations. Yeah, that's something that definitely uh, the Christian community has a problem with. This is, my, my, this is one of my big critiques. I have a lot of critiques to the Christian community because uh, no one hates Christians more than Christians, and <laughs> they do. They never want to. They how about this? One, a lot of them don't like philosophy. They don't like psychology. They they reject anything that's not straight out of simple simple Bible readings or the pastor on Sunday morning. They never want to go deeper. They, they, they see going deeper with questioning, and if you question God, then you are facing God. And that's how they, they interpret these things. Right. And they, they never want to actually go to – like we all believe – Christians believe we're all born to sin. People sin. People they, people have uh, hearts of sin. But we also think that you know, except Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. We believe that. But at the same time, that sin is still there. Like you still have the plan of wisdom of sin, and you are capable of great evil. And they don't want to – they don't want to deal with that. And I – it bugs me when you see some of these um some of these pastors, you know, they get really popular, become mega sales pastors, and they get all this power. And then you see what they start doing on the side, you know? And it's like they never really ask me, what would I do in these situations when they're confronted? They never they never um parent a lot of Christian parents are really bad at this. They sell to their kids, rightfully so, but they never the kids are so sell to that the moment they're confronted with temptation, they crumble. Immediately mm. they crumble. And that is something that I, somebody, I, I was a homeschooled kid. So I, I had homeschooled Christian friends. They're so like sheltered upon sheltered. And the moment this kid got into the weird world, boom, gone. Yeah. Immediately, just gone. And it's like, if his parents, like they did a, they did a good job keeping him safe, but like, wh where's the line between keeping your kid safe and keeping your kid so sheltered he's just, he's weak? Right. Like, I can't, yeah, this is my problem. With, this is my problem I have with like helicopter parents and Christian moms. They don't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Um, one of the things I look at, it, it's it's something I've really been studying. Uh, all right, so like, I don't consider myself a Christian. You've listened to my podcast. You probably know that. Yeah. I consider myself agnostic, but I understand the Christian doctrine. I under I, I was I was raised Southern Baptist, so. I kind of, I, I get it. And then I started listening recently to uh, some Greek Orthodox priests. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm gathering a lot of knowledge 
that I didn't get out of the Southern Baptist tradition. I'm gathering a lot of knowledge from them about the stories and about what's happening or, or what the Bible is explaining. And I think, I think one of, one of the things that people, I remember my cousin used to say this all the time is to, to reject the secular, reject the secular, stay out of the secular, stay out of the world. Like that, that's the world is the enemy of the flesh kind of deal. And I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible where you can interpret that. I think, I think where, what she was trying to say was reject worshiping that outside of Christ and that outside of the outside in the secular portion of reality. But some people are so afraid of, exposing themselves to something that tempts them to worship it above Christ, that they will in the long run, jeopardize their family unintentionally. And I think that's what's ha what happens a lot of times is when you, when you're a helicopter parent, it's not because you don't love your children. It's because you love your children that you're being that way. You just don't understand that allowing your children to experience pain is a greater form of love, right? God, Jesus or God, or however you want to look at it, did not protect Paul from being crucified, right? Like he was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was whipped. He was beaten. He went through all these things. He wasn't protected from the world. His, his mission was to go out into the world, mm -hmm. not be protected from the world. And I think parents misconstrue this. I think there are a lot of Christians that misconstrue this. Oh, yeah. That to me, and you're taking this from agnostic, and but it's part of the reason I'm agnostic. Because <laughs> you're showing so little faith in what you believe, yeah. then how are you going to convince me? You're not even willing to go through with, go through the motions and, and experience the life that was laid out before you. You're so worried. You're so scared of what's out there that you're hiding yourself. You're showing no faith. You're not trusting in God. You're not doing anything. So a lunatic like me, who's been out there 120 miles an hour on a Harley Davidson and fucking sleep, like, I'm like, y'all are a bunch of pussies. Mm -hmm. There I go again, talking shit. So, uh, but, <laughs> sorry, man. I told you I would do my best. <laughs> the same way you could to get people not listen to you, get like scared off the losers, the same way I put Catholic in my title. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, no, so it's, um, it's, it, it's one of those things like you, your, your example in the world and the way that you interact with the world and the way that if you're a Christian and you want to lead, lead that Christian life and lead others to Christ, you got to set some sort of example, because if you're acting like you're terrified of everything and hiding in your fucking basement all the time, then 
what are we all what what are the rest of us to think about it yeah like okay the, they don't really believe in this mm-hmm. this is just something they say they don't really believe in this yeah and That's so it's, it's i i get where your frustration is but at the same time part of my life has been observing this and going well if you're acting that way you're going to act out what you believe yeah you know i have a i have a christian friend of mine he is so uh terrified of booze and big drinking because he seems to become an alcoholic immediately that he won't go to weddings that serve alcohol like yeah. he skipped weddings and receptions and i'm like dude you're so scared of alcohol controlling you you let it control events you don't go to it's already like, controlling you that's yeah, I mean that's, I, I mean you, you've yeah. already you've already turned over your life to alcohol at the, in that in that position. Yeah. The alcohol is controlling you already. Right? Yeah. Um the one of the priests I listen to on a regular basis, he said um Protestants have an issue thinking that alcohol drinking alcohol is a sin, but it's not drinking alcohol that's a sin. Jesus drank drank wine like you had all these instances of the apostles drinking alcohol, etc. He said, "What what's a sin is if you go to an alcoholic's house and you drink alcohol with that alcoholic, mm-hmm. causing him to fall further away from God. That's the sin. But drinking alcohol in itself. But it but if you're so afraid to do anything because you're afraid you'll become an alcoholic, then the alcohol you're already an alcoholic as far as the sin is concerned." It's already controlling you. Yeah, they have, they have, they 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 preach fortitude, but they actually don't have any fortitude. They preach like I I am so I I am not tempted at all, and it's like you're not putting yourself any, you're not subjecting yourself to any possible chance. Right. It's like you won't go anywhere. So you're not like you haven't actually tested yourself in any way. Well, it's um, lose all opportunity. It's 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 one of the things I was talking to my wife about. My wife is a stark raving mad atheist and I'm an agnostic. So this, but we have these conversations at my house, believe it or not. Mm. And so Jesus and the Pharisees, right? Mm. What was Jesus's complaint about the Pharisees? The Pharisees believe they were keeping the law, right? They were, mm. they were going through the motions. They were keeping the law. They were worshiping. They were, they had all these written out laws in order to not break the Sabbath and not do this and not do that. And what was his, what was his complaint honestly with the Pharisees is like, you're not doing it in good faith. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. You think that these works that you'll work your way into heaven, right? Because if you look into the, if you look into the scriptures, there's nowhere in the scripture where it talks about non-believers going to hell. It's telling Christians that if you are doing the wrong shit, you'll go to hell. It doesn't even say hell. It doesn't even use those words. Um, but but it's all it's all written to Christians. It's not written to non-believers. It's not telling you or you know identifying what non-believe what's gonna happen to non-believers. That, that's nowhere in there. Like it's telling you what's going to happen to Christians and that Christians are going to pay this price for doing these things. And Jesus's entire fucking argument with the Pharisees wasn't that they, they weren't keeping the Torah. His argument was you think by acting in this way, 
you are righteous. But it's not by your actions that you're righteous. It's by your intentions, your heart, that you're righteous, right? So avoiding alcohol does not make you righteous, right? Mm -hmm. What you're doing in the presence and, and in your actions and in your heart during these times of trials, what makes you righteous, right? And nobody ever said that you were going to be perfect. Nobody yeah. ever said that. It was never, it's never once alluded to in the Bible that you're going to be a perfect person at any time. Yeah. And that those that feel like they are righteous above the others are going to be the first to be damned. I mean, I mean, that's basically the way it comes across. So I don't, I, I, I have a problem and growing up Southern Baptist, I have a lot of issues with the way the Bible was taught to me compared to the way I read it now. And I'm like, Oh, y'all don't even know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue, you know? And it makes me wonder, it makes me feel bad for those people like your friend that you're talking about mm -hmm. because they were probably just taught that. Yeah. And they're probably just doing what they're taught to an extreme in which it doesn't allow them to enjoy certain aspects of life. Mm -hmm. And that's sad. Yeah. No, it is Be like because that's not what salvation is. That's not going to save them in the, in the long haul. If you read the words, it's not doing anything for them. You know, and it's sad. Absolutely. That, that point you made about intentions, that was one of my big, uh, my, I don't know, the first time I really challenged my uh, Christian friends in my church was where I said, it's not like, it's like uh, you know what your left hand or your right hand is doing? That lady who gave 10 cents out of her last dime and that guy who put all the money in front, in front of everybody, they had to, he received his reward in full. You don't do mm -hmm. things for the attention. You don't do things for, um, you, it's, it's, you don't, how do I put this? When you do a good act, you shouldn't be doing it for the rewards or the attention they get from it. You should be doing it for the social media. It's a good act. Which is why I have a lot of problem with um, I have a lot of problem with people talking about heaven. Too mm. many Christians, in my opinion, when they talk about heaven, they talk about heaven as a reward. And I was like, I, when you frame heaven as the main goal, your goal should not be to have a good afterlife. Your goal should be make the people go to heaven with you. And when right. you, make goal, you have afterlife the goal, people do every action to get a bigger house in heaven. And they don't do the actual action for getting to win souls for heaven. They're, very, they're selfishly winning souls, in my opinion. And that's why I phrase it. And they, they, it's it's a real problem. They don't, and it's not only that they're ineffective, it's just a bad look for Christians. And it doesn't actually lead to any fulfillment. There's no real fulfillment actually helping anybody because it's all about what can I get out of it? You know, and they claim to hate selfishness, but they're so much like Hein Rand. They, they're like Christian <laughs> objectivists. They're, they're absolutely terrible. Yeah, I, I, I was, I, I think about, I think about that story and I might jack it up. So you might be able to correct me on this, but there was, there was a story that Jesus told, I think it was in Luke where the, the King gives, he gives like five rubies to, um, one guy, he gives three rubies to another guy and he gives one ruby to another guy. And the guy he gave five rubies to turned it into 10 rubies. And because he was faithful and he did what he was supposed to with it, he 
he got the kingdom and the guy that had three turned it into six and he got the kingdom and the guy who had one sat on it and did nothing with it. And just kind of like, I was afraid because like, you might like curse me for losing it. And he's like, you didn't even have the faith to do something with it. You get nothing. So that what the way that I look at that story and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that if you understand Christianity, which I don't claim to understand it at all, which is why I'm an agnostic because I still don't understand the idea. <laughs> so if you claim to understand it, you claim to have that reward waiting for you in the end. Why are you sitting on it? Why are you hoarding it? Why, why aren't you doing something with it? Why aren't you investing it? Like what, what is it that you're so scared of? You're not showing the faith to turn that one Ruby into two or four or six or whatever it may be. You're just sitting on it and hoarding it. Right. And I think about that story and I'm like, I don't know, man. I told my wife the other day and she disagrees with me on this, but, but that's okay. She's allowed to. I told her it's easier for me to believe there was a God at the beginning that created the heavens and the earth. than it is for me to believe that there was a guy that was crucified and resurre- resurrected from the dead, you know? And she was like, well, I feel the opposite. I feel like it's easier to believe that a guy was crucified and resurrected from the dead than it is to believe that somebody spoke all this into existence. So, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where I'm going with all this. Like when, whenever I start talking about these things and it's something very interesting for me to think about, but I'm not really certain about it. I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure that I have my finger on the pulse, but I, I do know that I would much rather, (laughs) I would much rather that there be a God than that the Tower of Babel is all there is. Mm. Just over and over and over again, we have to live that. I would much rather believe there is a God. But that wanting it to be so isn't enough for me to be convinced. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. To me, the agnostics make the most reasonable, reasonable rational sense. Like that is, a, I have a friend who's agnostic. We talk all the time, and it makes the most logical. It, it's a, how about this? If you take out face, take face out of the equation, it is the most reasonable, uh, open to all, all possibilities answer. And I have a lot of respect for agnostics. They people who would admit I don't know, I like those people. So yeah, I, that's, that's, that's the entire argument. That's the entire agnostic yeah. argument. I don't know. Like, yeah. and I, I, I hate fundamentalist of any, any, I think yes. hate is a strong word, but I get, I get really, I get really upset with fundamentalists either way, shape or form, because I'm like, well, how can you know that? And I'll ask them questions. Like, how can you know for a fact? How do you yeah. know? Like, explain to me. I was raised in a church. Like, tell me how you know, because I don't know. Like, if you know, and you can prove to me that you know, then tell me how you know, because I want to know. It's not that I don't want to know. It's just that I do not know. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, I, I'm not insulting you. 
I, I just, they drive me crazy. I was talking to my wife about that the other day too. I was like, if you're a hardcore atheist or you're a hardcore fundamentalist Christian, I just, it drives me nuts. Yeah. Just tell me how it is, you know, yeah. like, what is it, you know, and where did you get this information and how can I find it out? Because knowing is half the paddle GI Joe. <laughs> <laughs> No, I have, I have, I have, I have, I don't like, this is why I don't, I don't want really to talk to atheists or fundamental Christians too much because I get really frustrated with the whole, the, the arrogance and the certainty is frustrating to me. Right. You know, and this is why, this is why I like my Catholic friends and my um, Orthodox people is that it's, um, we have our arguments for why we think God's weird or why we think this is weird and they're fun, interesting. But at the end of the day, we we do take on faith that we they go, okay, I can I can philosophically believe up to this point. After this point, I have to take on faith that the rest is true. And right. this, is a, this is a big thing for me in Catholicism because there's so much I don't know about Catholicism because it's just, just so much there. There's so many councils and catechisms and meetings that just, to know all of it is impossible. But I know that I have faith that the Church God, the church Jesus made is gonna have the right answer, and once I accepted that, I just joined the church without learning the rest of it because I know if I trust Jesus, I trust the church, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have faith that the answer they give me is correct, and so I kind of I call it like agnostic Catholicism because I I don't know it, but I have faith that it's gonna be, they're gonna have the answer. So, oh, oh, sadly we're running out of time. I got working uh, tomorrow, but before we go, what books would you recommend to people? What books? Oh, Jesus. You get three. Three books. I, I get three. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, I'm going to go with a, a fiction book first, I think. And I would say Crime and Punishment mm. would be a great book because it really teaches you something about the American, uh, not the American mind, the, the human mind. Mm. And, and the way that people are capable of doing evil. Um, man, three books. Uh, Outliers is, is another one I would recommend by Malcolm McDowell. Um, I think it's a great book. And then, um, you know, Outliers is, is really interesting because there, there are these things, there are these experiments that he does or that he interacts with where he's like, one of the ones that sticks out to me is um, raising children, right? And it's like people that raise a, children that are assertive, where you might think these children are rude, but they're assertive. They're always questioning and talking back and kind of you know poking and prodding on subjects they're actually more likely to become successful mm. in their life you know and and then i don't know um ordinary men i would say uh, if you're if you're interested in psychology i'd say ordinary men but if you're kind of interested in modern um, politics and, and what's going on with modern politics, I'd say 
Shaping the Future of the Fourth Industrial Revolution by Klaus Schwab is a book that you cannot pass up. You have to read it um, because whether he whether he lays out exactly what's happening, he lays out what he wants to happen mm. and what the big money rollers want to happen and what they're trying to make happen. Mm. And so I think that's worthwhile knowing that. And there's so many other books. I mean, so many I, books. There's, <laughs> it's like, it's really hard. It's like three of, yeah, I picked four because I'm an Sounds asshole. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, but yeah, no. Um, yeah. And, and then there's so many books I haven't read that I, that, that I would love to read. In, Most of these books I haven't read. Yeah. Most of those. I've, I think. I've read the majority of these in here. Nice. Now I have a, I have another room upstairs full of books that of books I haven't read yet. So <laughs> this, a lot of them are my dad's books. So uh, That's cool. just, they haven't made their way downstairs yet, but they will get down here and they will get rid. But yeah, nice. the, the vast majority of the ones on this wall I have read in the last couple of years, actually. Um, there's a few of them I read years ago, but. But there's a combination of fiction and nonfiction and all kinds of stuff up there. How to do aquaponics is over there and uh, the Bible and pictures and all kinds of different stuff. So I, I got all kinds Very of cool. Cool. Cra crazy books up there. So <laughs> I read all yeah. kinds of wild shit. That's one thing. I love going to these bookstores and just walking around. I'm like, that book looks interesting because it's like there's so many books you don't even know about. And you read it like this is a great book. But like, how right. do you? I guess my thing, I love reading history, but so much of history is this propaganda, you know, to trying to find good history is hard, you know, so I, I um, one of the things I did want to tell you though, you being Catholic, I want, I want to do, I want to do an episode on this book with you. Operation, Operation. It's Operation Gladio, the unholy alliance between the Vatican, the CIA, and the mafia. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm buying that right now. So that we got it. I want I want you and I to plan out when we're going to do this episode. Yes, because this episode is going to be fun. I am buying that book as we speak because I was. This is this that like that tagline like the Vatican the mafia like the CIA yes. <laughs> like I told you, I was like I had some ideas for your book club, but they all have to do with the CIA. And then and then I'm thinking about your title, and I'm like, it's got to be Operation Gladio. It's got to be that one. That's that's to do it, man. Um, where can people find you at? Um, you can find me at the libertarianinstitute.org forward slash year dash zero. At the moment, we are doing a fun drive at the Libertarian Institute. So if you're a fan of the articles or the podcasts or whatever, go there, donate two, three, four, five bucks, man. Just let us know you love us. We're just trying to raise, this is our fall fun drive that, that right now going on. So I'm, I'm required under contract to, to tell you all about it. Not really, but I want to tell you all about it because I want to keep our lights on there at the Libertarian Institute. And then you can find me on Twitter at TD Salmons. I'm not always active on Twitter. And if you see me active on Twitter, most of the time I'm not being serious. 
Just letting you know. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. Guys, this is another episode of the Catholic Libertarian po uh, Podcast. Read more books and yeah. <laughs>